Well, kia ora. It's very cool to be back up here. Doesn't Hollywood do a good job when they put their mind to it? I mean, that is an epic trailer. And the way that, that it introduces this movie that was released, I don't know how long ago, is now or something, but like the deep voice and the experience, the majesty and all of that stuff, it's just awesome. But I wanted to I'd give you a glimpse of the Prince of Egypt this, uh, this morning, this evening, because it's into this series that we're going after this year. If you're on Facebook and you get the updates uh, from Summit Church, you would have got this on Friday sometime to say that our main series this year is Our God. We're going to be doing some other series and some other exciting things, and they're going to be shared in a few weeks' time at Vision Sunday. Normally, it's about now that we would do Vision Sunday, and that's being pushed back a few more weeks and so I'm going to let you know the other bits and pieces that are happening, both preachers and otherwise. Um, but I've been asked to just share a little bit tonight about where we're going in the main series for this year. And our main focus this year, our main series, is this one, our God. We really want to zero in on who God is. We want to stop and marvel at how amazing the God of the Bible is. And to do that, we're going to walk through together one of the most exciting books of the Bible. Does anyone want to hazard a guess after watching that trailer from Hollywood? You've got it, haven't you? We're going to be walking this year as a church family through the book of Exodus. And because I think almost more than any other book of the Bible, Exodus shines a light onto the grandeur and wonder of the God we serve. And so the invitation isn't so much to do what the trailer said, is to marvel at the majesty and grandeur of this epic movie that they made. Instead, it's to marvel at the majesty and grandeur and beauty of the God who sits behind the story of the book of Exodus. So tonight, all I wanna do is set the scene because we're going to pick up Exodus chapter one next week. So I just want to really give you a bit of a taster on why it is that we're into this amazing book in the Old Testament. So why Exodus? There's four key reasons I just simply want to share with you tonight. Number one is that Exodus is a story dramatically engaging. And what I mean by that is it is an epic story. In fact, you're hard-pressed to find a book in the Bible that has got more action and more amazing characters and more supernatural events and more superheroes than you find in the book of Exodus. If you're not familiar with Exodus, if you're quite new to this, or you kind of got stuck in middle of Genesis somewhere on a genie and you've never read any further, then I would actually love to challenge you uh, for the next... 20 or 40 days to read Exodus. Either a chapter a day or a couple of chapters a day, um, you'll get most through before it might get you a little tiring on you. But I'd actually invite you to read Exodus and get familiar with it. If you are familiar with Exodus, just let your mind wander through the storyline for a minute. Begins with a heartless tyrant who orders a large-scale genocide of a nation by ordering the execution of baby boys. It involves a courageous 
mother who defies the orders of a king because she sees in the face of her child something extraordinary. We find a bush in a desert that is on fire and yet not consumed from the flames. Within those fires is almighty God whose voice booms out and calls a man who had given up on life into ministry. You find the Nile River that the ancient Egyptians thought was the lifeblood of their nation, literally turning into blood as the God of a slave people proves he is greater than the Nile God himself. You find man that gets plunged the God of the sun to primacy. It's a story of an angel of death who stalks the land one night, execute firstborn child, unless there is blood smeared across the door. It's a story of a dramatic escape of millions of people across a dry seabed with the sea piled up on two massive walls on each side that will then turn around once they have crossed and plunge an entire army in a nation. It's the story of a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that lead God's people through the desert. It's a book that has manna falling from heaven, quails coming to land ready served for dinner, water gushing out of a rock. It is the story of a God who descends on a mountain in fire and smoke and cloud, ready in a relationship with a newly redeemed people. It's a story that contains the finger of God inscribing on tablets of stone the very heart of his law for not only the nation, but every person on planet Earth. It's a story that contains an obscene orgy of worship around a golden calf that causes the wrath of God to fall. It's a story of a prophet who pleads with his God, who is about to execute sentence on those people, pleads for their lives to be smeared. And it's a story that ends in a team of worship built for this God, who fills it with a physical manifestation of his glory that so blows the people away they cannot come anywhere That's just a little taste of what the book of Exodus holds. In my view, it is one of the most dramatic books in the Bible. In fact, apart from the Gospels, which contain miracle after miracle of God himself in the flesh, Jesus, I think the book of Exodus is unparalleled in the Scriptures. And so we're going to spend a year diving into one incredible dramatic story after another that points us to our God. It's a story that is dramatically engaging. The second reason we're going to jump into Exodus this year is because it's a story that is historically true. Historically true. Now, often these two things don't go together. Often if you're going to write a great novel or a great movie, you, you, you tend to put historical fact aside. 
In fact, if you were to do a Google search of the highest grossing movies of all time, you would find at the top of the list, anyone want to have this? From last year, Avengers Endgame. How many people saw Avengers Endgame? How many people over 40 saw Avengers Endgame? You're cool, you're cool. I haven't, I'm not cool. But see, most Hollywood blockbusters, most of the highest grossing movies of all time, the whole Marvel ensemble movies, which are in the big best-selling grossing movies of all time, most of them, they suspend real life. It's stories of superheroes and superpowers and amazing villains and traveling through time and blowing at ease. And it's not real, but that's kind of the cool thing, isn't it? You suspend reality, you get into the movie theater, and you just escape from the real world for a couple of hours. And if you're going to make a dramatic movie, more than not, you suspend reality. Apart from that special genre of movie, where on the poster or on the trailer, they'll often put somewhere based on real events. And that's another type of movie. Because if it's done well, there's drama and it's engaging. But there's a certain sense of satisfaction as you watch, knowing that it's actually, they do somewhat. You watch it and go, man. Over the summer during camping, one of the days we were camping and it was raining, the, the boys and I went to the movie 1917. It's not based on a particular event during World War I, but it, it does tell an account, a made-up story, but the background of and the portrayal of trench, uh, trench warfare in World War I was quite staggering, quite powerful. And what was powerful was some of the drama of the storyline, but what also made it powerful was this is, this is real. Parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, those generations, depending on your age, the generation of World War II, soldiers who went to the battlefields of Belgium and France, that's what they lived through. And it makes that story incredibly engaging. When we come to Exodus, we're not reading an Avengers Endgame story. We're reading a 1917 story. Watching a movie that's not a made-up story of superheroes and miracles and amazing things like Days of Darkness was turning to blood, those were real events. Very dramatic, but historically true. And it's important to emphasize that as we come to Exodus, because for many people in the world today, that isn't how they view this book. In fact, the almost unanimous verdict of scholars who do not believe that the Bible is God's word is that Exodus is a myth. But actually, Yesterday, or this morning, I jumped on Wikipedia, the font of all knowledge in our world today, and I typed in the Exodus, and this is in part what Wikipedia says. The consensus of modern scholars is that the Bible does not give an accurate account of the origins of Israel. Most scholars believe that the story of the Exodus has some historical basis, but that any such basis has little resemblance to the story told in the Bible. That second sentence up there is true. The majority 
of scholars of the ancient world and our world today believe the story is a myth probably based on some kernel of truth that may be hard to find, but it's almost certainly not the way that Exodus tells the story. The second sentence is true. The first sentence is not. Because if you say the consensus of modern scholars, that first sentence, that suggests that every modern scholar today thinks it's a load of bunkum. And that isn't the case. Because while the majority who don't believe the Bible write Exodus off as a myth, there is a solid group of Bible-believing, PhD-wielding scholars who wholeheartedly believe that this is fully and completely true. And those are the scholars that I follow and I read, but they believe and have made a brilliant case over time uh, that the story of the Exodus is, in fact, actually correct. And so there's a debate that goes on, but I just want to tell you that if you, as, as we go through this series, if you jump online, if you research things, if you go to Wikipedia, you're going to be told a narrative that says this isn't for real. And it is. In fact, the only debate among uh, scholars who believe the Bible about the, the Exodus, really, the big debate is when exactly did it happen? There's two dates. There's a late date, about uh, 1250 BC, and there's a, a date 200 years earlier. And really, the main debate is which of those dates. The late date is what you get the Prince of Egypt. And so while we'll talk about the pharaohs in the next couple of weeks, but the Prince of Egypt, if you watch that movie again, the pharaoh at the time of Moses' birth was Pharaoh Seti I, and the pharaoh that Moses competes against is the powerful Ramesses. That's based on one camp that says the Exodus happened around 1250 BC. I personally think the other camp is more reasonable. Uh, earlier date of around 1450 BC, because simply it fits the chronology of the Bible better. But either date you go with, either set of pharaohs you argue for, there is no doubt in mind that Exodus is not only an engaging, dramatic story, it's also historically true. Thirdly, though, because it's true, because the events of Exodus really did happen, because the Nile really did turn to blood, because uh, uh, an infestation of frogs really did attack the land of Egypt, because Passover was a real historical event and not just a myth of Israel, the story of the Exodus and the book of the Exodus actually becomes incredibly important for the rest of the Bible. Exodus is the second book of the Old Testament. The first book, Genesis, or Beginnings, is the foundation of everything that will come. But Exodus really is the second foundation stone. And so much of what will come later in the Bible comes back to the book of Exodus. So to understand Exodus and to see what God is like in Exodus actually sets you up for the rest of the Bible. In fact, many of the Psalms and the prophets and the later teachers of Israel in the Old Testament will keep harking back to the events in the book of Exodus. It's the founding of the nation of Israel. It's the beginning of their history as a people. 
It's the foundation of their worship and their feasts and their very calendar. And so time and time again, the Old Testament will come running back to the book of Exodus. For example, I just was reading Psalm 106 earlier this week, where it celebrates the story of Exodus. He saved them by his, for his namesake to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea. I love that. He rebuked the sea and it dried up. He led them through depths as through a desert. And Psalm 106 is a celebration of what God has done and a call for God's people in that generation to trust his love, no matter what they're facing. See, time and again, the later poets and the prophets and the teachers will come back to Exodus and say, that God is your God. And you can follow him and you can trust him. And he is worthy of your worship and your obedience. But it's not only the Old Testament. Much of the theology of the New Testament comes back to Exodus as well. We sang King of Kings, which I love. But we just sung about the fact that Jesus redeems. Where does the idea of redemption come from in the New Testament? It's foundational in the New Testament. It comes from Exodus. That wording comes from Exodus. Jesus said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Where does that concept come from? It comes from the book of Exodus. In fact, the entire narrative and idea of salvation, many New Testament scholars say, comes straight from Exodus and the story of Passover and the Red Sea. See, this is foundational and crucial for everything that flows from the rest of the Bible. And if at times you've looked at the Bible and and still to understand some of the concepts, Exodus will actually help to lay a foundation to understand the rest of what is coming. So why Exodus? Because it's a cool story. And it's a true story. And it's an incredibly important story. But ultimately... And really, the main reason that at Summit Church, this is going to be our main series here, is because Exodus is utterly God-centered. See, the main character of Exodus is not Moses. It's not Aaron or Miriam. It's not the great villain, Pharaoh. It's not even collectively the nation of Israel. The main character of Exodus is Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Yahweh permeates the page of every single chapter in this book. In fact, when you do read places like Psalm 106, the poets and the prophets who will come later, the story of Israel, when they retell the story of Exodus, they hardly ever mention Moses' name. It's not Moses who led the people through the Red Sea. It's not Moses who redeemed his people from slavery. It's not Moses that performed miracle after miracle. It is Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Exodus is a book that is centered and completely on Yahweh. When Moses will come out of the desert at 80 years of age, reunite with his long-lost brother Aaron, 
and together they walk into the presence of the most powerful monarch of the ancient world, the autocratic ruler of Egypt, the Pharaoh. They will walk in in the beginning of Exodus chapter 5, and they will say, this is what Yahweh, God of Israel, says. Let my people go. And then Pharaoh asks the question that is at the heart of Exodus. Exodus 5, 2, Pharaoh says, Who is Yahweh? And why should I bother about what he thinks? And that question, Yahweh, forms the theme of what Exodus is all about. Because that's the question Moses himself asked at the burning bush. And that's the question the elders of Israel ask Moses when he comes out of the woods. And that's the Pharaoh, that question that Pharaoh dares to ask. And that's the question, I'm sure, that was going through the minds of Israel right before they took the first step into the Red Sea with those stinking big walls of water on either side. Who's, who's uh, Yahweh again? And they get to the other side of the Red Sea. And they turn around and watch the waves demolish the entire army of the superpower of their day. And here's what they sing. Who among the gods is like you, Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? They've just answered their own question. Who is Yahweh? He is the supreme and utterly different one. He is the true God. Holiness and awesome in glory who works wonders for his people. And that's why we're going to journey through Exodus. Because in Exodus, we're going to come face to face with Yahweh. The awesome and sovereign God of Israel. We're going to come face to face with his majesty and his holiness and his awesomeness. And as we walk through this series this year, as we walk through each chapter, each story of the book of Exodus, what we're going to concentrate on is what does this piece tell us about God? And so every sermon through this Our God series is entitled Our God. So next week we're in Exodus 1, Our God is Faithful. Then we're going to look at the birth of Moses, our God is sovereign. Then we're going to look at the second half of chapter 2. Our God is unhurried. And our God is sufficient. And our God is trustworthy. And every sermon in the series is going to be a statement about exactly what our God is like. And it's going to be an invitation to come face to face again. Because to be perfectly honest with you, I think we desperately, I think we desperately need this. A couple of decades ago, I bought a book by a guy I hadn't heard of before, a seminary uh, president by the name of Donald McCulloch. He wrote a book, and this was the title that summoned me to buy it. 
He called his book The Trivialization of God. But it was the subtitle that grabbed me. The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. What McCulloch was trying to get across in his book is the idea that after a while, God's people get so used to God that to use the old expression, familiarity breeds contempt. We just get used to this God we serve. We forget about what he's like. We get so familiar with him that we just kind of wander through life and, yep, he's my God. And it's easy to forget who he really is. McCulloch begins the very first chapter of his book this way. Visit a church on Sunday morning or evening. Almost any church will do. And you'll likely find a congregation comfortably relating to a deity who fits nicely within precise doctrinal precisions or who conforms to individual spiritual experience. But he says, you will not find much awe or sense of mystery. And let's be honest. As you walked in for one more church service in your life, I mean, if you've been a Christian, how many church services have you even gone to in your lifetime? And as you walked into one more today, how much awe and sense of mystery was there as you drove here? If you had an awe-o-meter stuck on your forehead, was your awe-o-meter over on the red, like, I can't wait to get to church and worship the God who is worthy of my worship and find out more about why I should worship him with everything I have and who I am? Was your awe-o-meter over on the red? Or is your sense of awe of God more on the orange or the light orange or the yellow or the green or on the ice-cold blue? See, I think McCulloch's got something to say to us because he goes on and awe have been replaced the yawn of familiarity. Reverence and awe for our God has been replaced by the yawn of familiar, familiarity. The consuming fire has been domesticated into a candle flame, adding a bit of religious atmosphere, perhaps, but no heat, no blinding light, no awesome power. Those words captivated me 20 years ago when I first read them. And they still grab me today. Because this is the struggle of our lives. To remember just how awesome our God is. And I think the invitation of a, an author that I'm reading right now sums it up well for what I want. Jen Wilkin in a one of two brilliant books on the attributes of God. She says, I want us to consider the majesty of a limitless God.
I want us to meditate on his perfections so that they become to us the object of our reverence and awe. That is what I want for me this year. And that's what I want for you this year. I want us to be in awe again of our God. And that's why we're in Exodus. So that in each chapter, on every page, we will come face to face again with Yahweh, the God of Israel. So what I want to do tonight is I want to, and I want to commit this year ahead that this would be a year that we fall on our face more often in the awesomeness of God. But before I pray, I actually want to give you an opportunity to pray. To just maybe quietly come to God on your own and just perhaps confess the yawn. To perhaps acknowledge that this hasn't been what it should be. To maybe acknowledge that your view and understanding of God has shrunk over time and you need it like a balloon to be expanded. Whatever you need to say to this incredible God, Yahweh, I want to invite you to do that. So I'm going to give you 30 seconds or so to just quietly pray and give this, this journey to him. And then I'll close us in prayer. you stand with Yahweh our great God stand before you today acknowledging that we really do get far too familiar we want to confess that our understanding of who you are is too small whether it's because life gets too hard for us or life gets too cruisy for us, our comprehension of who you are is too finite. And we need to get a bigger view of you. So God, thank you for this opportunity that this year is going to give us in the Exodus to blow our minds, to expand our categories, to enlarge our view of our God. Yahweh, would you help us to be hungry for more of you? Would you help us to long to know you more deeply? Would you help us to be passionate about following you more closely? 
would you help us to open our eyes and see the face of this God that we follow and serve and love. We give ourselves to you, Yahweh. Help us to expand the horizon of our knowledge and our gratitude and our love and our worship of you, our great, great Amen.